Good morning. Happy Independence Day weekend to you. Um, those who are already back in town or who never left, sorry about that. Um, my name is Nick Allen. I'm the family and children's pastor here at Rolling Hills, and I'm really thrilled that you're here today as we continue our study called The Road Less Traveled, which is ultimately a look at the entire book of 1 Corinthians and what God had to say to an early church then and how in the world that relates to a not-so-early church like us today. In World War II, Great Britain set up a lot of steel fortresses um, outside in the ocean um, because they wanted to prevent German invaders. One such fortress was known as the famous royal fort called Ruff's Tower, and it was built seven nautical miles off the shore into the North Sea, meaning that it occupied international waters. Because everybody knows that anything beyond three nautical miles into the sea is not territorial, right? I mean, I don't know. So the forts uh, were abandoned in the 1950s, and most of them were torn down, all except for the one in international waters, Ruff's Tower. Uh, In the year 1966, a fellow by the name of Roy Bates, who was former British infantry and also now a a, a radio host of some pirate radio station in Great Britain, uh, he commandeered the fortress, and at the advice of his lawyers, he declared it to be an independent state named Sealand. To raise funds for his new government, Sealand began selling royalty papers. And so a few years ago, I surprised my princess by making her a princess. Susan and I now boast dual citizenship as the Allen family in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and as the baron and baroness of the international state of Sealand off the coast of Great Britain. Isn't that fun? Happy Valentine's Day to her. I have this idea that you guys should salute me when you see me. <laughs> Not fun. I'm like a baron now. Titles are really funny things. Uh, yeah, we work with our kids. You know, now we have girls who are seven and six, and we work with them quite a bit um, to say things like "yes sir" and "no sir," "yes ma'am" and "no man" when they're responding to um, us and other adults in their lives. It's a sign of respect, and we're working to incorporate. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we're better at it than others, but we're working to incorporate that um, into how they respond to adults in their lives as a sign of respect. Respect is an important thing, but it's also kind of a funny thing. You see. We're often way more concerned with the respect we get than the respect we give. I think the world would have us believe that being a person who offers respect to others comes from a general disposition of being able to respect yourself. Maybe that's true. But I think for the life of the believer, being a person who shows respect to others really comes from a general disposition of respecting God and his word. And when I think of respecting God, I think of a word that I learned as a kid growing up in evangelical churches called lordship. Um, we would often hear these testimonies of changed lives of people who had heard about the gospel of Jesus and dedicated their lives to being a Christ follower early in life and been baptized as a, a born again believer. And then all of a sudden lived life in any manner of like wild, crazy, rebellious living until they came to a point where they recognized Jesus needing to be in charge of their life. And so they called him Lord. And they would stand up in these testimonies and say, you know, when I was a child, Christ became my savior and now I'm making him my Lord. And I didn't think anything about that until adulthood when I began to understand the true nature of what it is for Christ to be our Lord and what it is for him to reign supreme in our lives. Because the problem with that whole lordship theology is the fact that 
Jesus Christ is already Lord over everything. I don't make him Lord over anything. Now, there may come a moment in my life when the veil is lifted and I all of a sudden recognize him for that which he already is. But my declaration of his personhood and the Trinity of God makes no difference. He is who he is, whether I proclaim it or not. You know, Peter preached in his very first post-Pentecostal sermon. It's written in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. I like that word certainty. And anytime the Bible says something to the effect of certainty, it makes me happy because I need some things to be sure in my life. I need some things that I can count on. I need some things that are true regardless of what anybody says, thinks, or feels, I I need some certainty. And, And this says that we can know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's Lord and Savior. Here's the deal. God made Jesus Savior and Lord, not us. And it's Savior and Lord, not Savior or Lord. And it's until we recognize that salvation is not for us until we will declare that the God of the universe has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus, who reigns supreme in our life. We can't separate the two. The idea of being saved by grace, but not under the authority of Christ in our lives. Enter 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11. It's a challenging passage with lots of different thoughts culminating down into one major point that you and I need some measurements in our lives. I need measurements. I don't like a scale, but I need a scale because it tells me where I'm at. And it tells me where, where I have needs and where improvements need to be made. I didn't like bad grades as a kid, but in some moments I needed some roughed up red papers to show me where I was and to show me what I lacked and to show me what I needed to do next. This summer, we've been going chapter by chapter through the book of First Corinthians, which is Paul's letter to a Corinthian church. Now, most scholars believe that this letter was written actually before the Gospels of Jesus. So Paul isn't summing up what he had already read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's responding to Christ who is real in his life and communicating to a church of people that he loves so that he can help them be more Christ-like. These Corinthian church members weren't reading the book of Matthew in Bible study because for them, the book of Matthew did not yet exist. They were studying Old Testament scriptures and hearing New Testament live teaching in order to become more like the person of Jesus. They were suffering from a lot of disunity and a lot of immorality that was prevalent in the life of the very affluent church. There were also great issues of idolatry. Idolatry in the biblical sense, if we were to look through the Old Testament and New Testament, always seems tied to the fact that someone is worshiping a little statue of a false god. For us, we have to broaden our scope of what idolatry really means for us to say that anything that we place in the seat of authority or importance in our life above that of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone becomes idolatry. Even really good things can be idolatrous in our lives if we allow them to come in place of Jesus and how we respond to him. You see, it's not about putting Christ first in our lives over and above all the other myriad of really important things that we have. He isn't just barely edging out family and career and goals. It's not Christ first. It's Christ only. And when we really understand that it's Christ only at the expense of everything else, not just our sin, but also everything else that we love, that's when we know that Christ is supreme in our lives. And this passage in particular, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, gives us some measuring sticks. 
It gives us some tools and some questions that we can ask ourselves to really understand whether or not we are people who have Jesus Christ seated on the throne of authority in our lives. Is he our royalty? We dive into 1 Corinthians 10 together today, starting with verse 1. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, they were drinking from the wealth of Jesus before they even knew or had Jesus. It says, but God was not pleased with most of them. Uh Uh-oh. For they were struck down in the desert. And then verse 6 says, now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil as they did. You know, the Old Testament stories serve as examples for us so that we won't make the same mistakes other people did. The first thing that we have to examine in our lives is the past. And what really happened here and what really happened here that we can learn from to make us more like Christ today. You go down to verse 7 and you'll figure out what the problem really was. It says, don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Um, That's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, which says, early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowships offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and then got up to play. Paul, cite your sources, MLA. Okay, back to the verse. Paul's talking about when people were really frustrated waiting on Moses at the base of Mount Sinai because he was up there hearing a word from God and he was going to bring them the Ten Commandments, and they were tired of waiting on when he was going to come back. And so they decided, like you and I probably would have decided, hey, let's all take off our earrings and burn them in a fire and make some liquid gold and then carve it into a cow for ourselves, and then we'll worship it. Sounds logical, right? These are people who had just experienced Passover. They had been spared death and plagues in Egypt and walked out of slavery into freedom. These are people who had walked across dry ground with a sea hedging up on both sides of them. These are people who had just picked up bread in the morning off the ground that God put there for them to eat. These are people that saw water burst from a rock because they were thirsty and they had needs. These are people that physically saw a fire in the sky that governed their path at night and then a cloud that protected them by day. These are people who had seen the manifest authority and power of almighty God. And yet when they got a little bit tired of waiting, impatience set in and they decided to worship something false. That was idolatry and Moses was livid. If you want to know the truth about 1 Corinthians ten seven, when the people got up to play and Exodus chapter 32, 6, where people got up to play, it was non-monopoly. It was dirty stuff. It was a wild, drunken party at the base of a mountain because they wanted to declare that the cow had saved them. And God wasn't pleased. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. The writer of Hebrews warns people and says, you better pay attention so that you won't drift away. That word drift in the Greek language, because that's what the New Testament was originally penned in, is pararhueo. And it literally has three meanings. The first is drift, which you see translated before you. And it literally means to drift out to sea because you're on a raft and the current just takes you away. And then all of a sudden you don't know where you are. We can be swept away by the current of this world. 
The second definition for the word parahueo is another one that we'll understand. It's the word slip, as in something slipped my mind. I have no fewer than 101 examples of something big and something small that could also slip your mind, but I can't say any of them to you because Susan would be upset at me. Homegirl forgets a lot. It's okay. Shh, don't tell. Things can slip our minds because we got a lot going on. There's a ton on our plates. We can't continue to put stuff in here without something slipping out. And the danger in that is when that something becomes this thing. Final definition is the word leak. You could also translate parahueo as the word leak. And then Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 would be, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we've heard so that we will not leak. And what it really means is so that our faith in Christ will not leak. That's a really good object lesson too. We could take a pen and poke it into the bottom of your coffee cup this morning and slowly but surely all of the coffee would come out. And that coffee's really good and you need it. We could flip that around and say that something bad could leak out of your life because, I don't know, circa 2008 when I was holding my daughter Nora Blake who wasn't even one years old at the time but at four months she she weighed 17 pounds and 12 ounces, and all of a sudden she pararhueoed all over me because the gap between her leg chunk and the diaper was open. If there's a crack in the foundation, something can get in. It can cause a leak, and it can ruin the house. Help, Mayday, Nora Blake's pararhueoing all over me. We got to pay attention to that stuff. Because we don't want our faith in Christ to leak out. We don't want obedience to Jesus to slip our minds. We don't want to get caught up in a cultural current to where we drift away from the gospel that supposedly has changed us. The writer of Hebrews says we've got to pay attention or you're going to drift away. Paul tells the Corinthian church, you've got to pay attention to the past. And so I say to us today, are we learning from the past? Are we learning from Christian history? Are we learning from Old Testament truths? Are those stories changing us? Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. When the God of this great universe wanted in his generosity to give us a mental picture for what it means to repeat the same mistake over and over and over again, he chose a dog licking his own recently digested kibble. That's gross. So a fool repeats his folly. So a fool refuses to learn from the past. From their own mistakes and from that of our fathers who went before us. Our ability to follow God and learn from Israel's past demonstrates the value that we place on Scripture. That's the next measurement. Have we learned from the past? And do we take God's word seriously? Does it matter to us? Does it govern who we are and who we want to be? If you continue in verse 8, it says, Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day 23,000 people fell dead. Um, Some scholars believe that that's referring to Numbers chapter 25, where 24,000 people died in a town called Shittim for being like disobedient to God, but most scholars tend to go back to Exodus chapter 32, which he's just completely referenced, where 3,000 people who committed idolatry with that golden cow were um, killed by the Levites, and then another 20,000 possible people died because of a plague that God sent. We'll land there and say that, suffice it to say, 23,000 people died in one day. That's just 
just shy of the 25,000 that we lost in the American Revolution. But that happened over the course of time. 23,000 people in one day. In verse 9, it says, let us not tempt Christ as some of them did as they were destroyed by snakes. Um, That's a reference to Numbers chapter 21, where the people complained against God and he sent snakes to bite them so they died. Um, That's a passage of scripture I do not want to repeat. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Um, That's a reference to Numbers chapter 16, where this one guy named Korah complained that Moses was in charge because I guess he wanted to be in charge. And they, uh, a lot of people died that day too. We want to learn from those mistakes, and we want to do it in a way that places value on Scripture in our lives. Verse 11 says, now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the end of the ages have come. It's our turn now to show that we believe this. It's our turn now to show that this is important. It's our turn now to show that we understand what this means for our lives today. Paul might as well have just summed it up and said, how seriously do you take the word of God? How seriously do you take the words that are written in this book? And how seriously do you intend on following this with every breath that you have? I love the Old Testament stories. Some of them I think are kind of scary. And some of them I think should have a rating on the top of them to let us know that this is not for children. You know, I'm a children's pastor. Some of those stories we can't talk about over there on Main Street because they're scary stuff. I love the Old Testament stories because I think it's in the story of God that we understand the nature of God. And I want to know more about his nature. If you knew that I was born in Montgomery, Alabama, but then as a child, my family moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where I grew up, you, you, you know something about me that lets you know a little bit about who I am. It's part of my story. If you know that I graduated from Appalachian State University with a degree in public communication and speech writing, you know part of my story. If you know that it was there that I met Susan and we got married right after graduation, yeah, you know an awesome part of my story. If you know that we have three fantastic kids named Lily Kate, Nora Blake, and our little guy Simon, you know a really triumphant part of our story. If you know that there's two little babies that we haven't met because we lost them in miscarriage, you know a painful part of our story. And the more you know about my story, the more that you know me. If you know that I started my career in ministry as a student pastor, working with middle school and high school kids, but three or four years ago now, felt called to move into an area where kids and families was my bent. You, You know part of my story, and therefore you know part of me, and you understand part of my nature. Knowing God's story helps us know who he is. And when we know who he is, we're more prepared to respond to who he wants us to be in light of that. We live in a world that is egregiously at every single turn attempting to make God's word fit us. Instead of adjusting our lives and the world to fit it. There's a problem if God's word fits you. A couple of weeks ago, I got the pleasure to be at our South Nashville campus, and we were talking about the importance of the local church community in our lives, and I was able to say to them, you know, a lot of people search for the church that fits them best. There's a problem if the church fits you. There's a problem if God's word fits you. I don't want God's word to fit me. I'm a sinner. I need to fit it. God's word should be more like a pair of skinny jeans that you keep in your closet that you're aspiring to later in life. You don't fit in it today, but your goal is to get there. God's word is not some generality that you settle into comfortably. It's the holy standard that you aspire to. That's how we elevate God's word in our lives. It's what sets us apart and makes us different. The fact that we learn from scripture and we apply it to who we are and we attempt to love God better because of it. There's another measurement and it's the measurement of God's grace. 
And it's the question that we ask ourselves, am I really at peace with God? You skip down to verse 16, it says, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? You see, for the disciples who who mourned the loss of Jesus, for the disciples who wanted a, a triumphant military ruler, Paul's saying that the cup of blessing is really the blood sacrifice of Jesus. The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ and the sacrifice that he made? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For all of us share that one bread. Paul said that because there was so much disunity in the church. He said, look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in what is offered on the altar? The part of the sacrifice that they laid out in the Old Testament that they were allowed to eat after meant that they were participating in the sacrifice. It meant that it wasn't just the lamb that was slain out on the table for the sins of the whole world, that it was people sacrificing themselves in an obedient relationship with God. It meant that they were recognizing him as the ultimate authority in their life. And then he says, what am I saying? Verse 19, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. I'm really uncomfortable with how many times he's saying the word demons. Or are we just provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The word sharing in verse 16, it's the Greek word koinonia. It's where we get the word fellowship. It's where we get the word community. It's also where we get the word communion. Paul was saying that to be in communion with God meant that you can't be in communion with the world. You can't follow both God and the world. You're going to love one or hate the other. It's not going to work. The believers in Corinth were also sacrificing to false idols in amidst to the fact that they were sacrificing to God. Paul explains that that system of sacrificial worship, that when Israel was identifying with the lamb, they were submitting to God's authority. And he's saying you can't submit to the authority of God and to the authority of some false idol in your life. To sacrifice to an idol or to share that communion bread with some idol idol worship was like you were identifying with the reality of that idol because that idol was a false God that you couldn't worship at the same time that you worship God. He was saying that God wasn't going to receive your worship because it's not God and it's God only. We can't tell God in a song on Sunday that we love him and then illustrate life as an unbeliever in all of our decisions the rest of the week. The people in Corinth were defiling the holy sacrament by getting crunk on the communion wine and sharing some of the communion meal with idol worship. Paul's saying you can't do that. If you skip down to chapter 11, he talks about communion more. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're not commanded to remember the birth of Jesus Christ, although we do and we celebrate it. It's called Christmas and I love it. We are commanded, however, to remember the death of Jesus Christ because because it's that atoning death that makes us Christians. And it's that atoning death that gives us salvation. It's not the birth of Jesus that mattered because he could have come as a perfect, glorious king. Without the death, we have nothing. And we're called to remember that. He goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. 
Some traditions dive really deep into how the communion elements actually administered the grace of God to us. We have to be careful there because it's not through those elements and it's not through receiving that communion that we receive salvation. That's through the grace and the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually communion that allows us to demonstrate what Jesus has already done us and the faith that has already saved us. It's a way to proclaim that grace over and over and over again until he comes back and to proclaim that grace one day and to live outside of a Christ-like life the next is to be a hypocrite. And it is to defile the very grace that saved us. We need communion as a reminder that Jesus died. And an inspiration to live faithfully because Jesus died. Living in grace means forgiving yourself and forgiving others. Colossians 3.13 says that we should forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. It's not being bound to some yoke of legalism and rules that we can't possibly measure up to. And it's also not holding someone else to that standard that they can't possibly measure up to. It's about being so transformed by the grace of Jesus that your only response to God, your only natural loving response to him is obedience and observance to his word. That's worship. It's about being so transformed by grace that kindness and forgiveness toward others is your natural loving response to people. That's evangelism. And if we, the corporate capital W worldwide church, we would get that part right, more people would want to know God. They would. And then we wouldn't need apologetics to prove Jesus. Because we would have a grace-filled life That attracted people to Jesus. It leads us to our own responsibility in that grace. Which is a fourth measurement for us. Are we maturing in Christ? Back to chapter 10 verse 23. It says everything is permissible but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible but not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market asking no questions for conscious sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions of conscience. This was the same principle that my mother operated by when she took us to dinner on the grounds at my grandparents' local church. We were required to test and try any manner of nasty casserole that any person put on our plate. Casseroles, I have a definition for those. It's when old ladies go to their pantry and pull out everything, mix it all together, top it with cornflakes and bake it, and then they expect you to eat it. I don't understand. I'm totally digressing. Um, I think Paul just says be polite. And I do think that's important. But as your pastor, I want to give you an out and say that there's, you can... You can completely put a couple of things off your table. Minor mayonnaise and craft singles. Um, just kind of refuse those. Um, note here that Paul says that you don't have to clean your plate when you go to a believer's house. Um, just when you go to an unbeliever. So most of the time when I refuse dishes that contain mayo and processed cheese, it's because the people that are serving it claim to be Christ followers. Maybe. And Jeff did a really good job last week um, outlining for us what it means to have freedom but also what it means to live and operate our lives under the overriding principle of love for others. You skip down and Paul sums up the reason why. It's verse 31. It says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. There's our measurement of responsibility. Are we doing it for the glory of God? 
It says, give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. That encompasses everybody of his day, Jews, non-Jews, everybody else. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. It's so people will come to Jesus. That's his only aim. Are I so, it's ridiculous. Am I so married to my Christian liberties that I'm willing to cling to that over the opportunity to see someone who is far from God come to know Christ? Maturity means that I'm willing to give up stuff for the sake of others. And my maturity is always tied to leadership. The question there is, who in your life spurs you to be more like Christ? Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Paul spent more than a year with the Corinthian church. He did life with them. He invested himself with them. He taught them everything that he knew about what it meant to follow God. And FYI, the first 11 chapters of this letter indicate that the church is not doing so hot. That's the reason for the letter. So he sends it to them as a sign of accountability, helping them get back on track to where they started so that they can begin incorporating the things that made them in unity with one another as a body of believers that helped them abstain from things like immorality so that they could accomplish the goal that God had set before them to see other people in their community unity come to know Christ. This is accountability and our willingness to accept it, take it, receive it, and also offer it in a spirit of love is an indication of our maturity in life and that of our own leadership. Who is spurring you towards Christ? Who, because of their friendship with you, makes you more like Jesus than you were before you met them? We need mentors. We need friends. We need accountability partners. We need Bible study groups. We need spiritual fathers. We need spiritual mothers. We need teachers of God's word to help us understand how to incorporate that into who we are. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Who are you imitating? Is it the guy down the street who just got another new car? Whose kids just scored another winning goal? Whose family just got back from another all-expensive, all-inclusive, expensive vacation? Or is it someone who, by the nature of their relationship, is strategically making you become more like Jesus? Take it up another notch. Who is becoming more like Christ because of their interactions with you? What about our kids? Are we making them more like us, or are we making them more like Jesus? I think about that often. I wish that I thought about it more. One of my kids, that sweet Nora Blake, she is so strong. Her personality is over the top, and it's so much like mine, it's not even funny. I think about how much she is like me now, and I wonder that if she stays on that track later on in life, one of the descriptions that will be used to identify her as Christ-like. I hope so. I hope so. Paul dives into a next phase of passage in chapter 11 that we won't go into today that's pretty difficult. It's about hats, um, really about head coverings. And ultimately, if you take it a little bit higher into a 15,000 foot view of the church for us today, it's not so much about what we wear on our heads. It's really what we wear on our hearts because it's about the art of Christ-like submission. Suffice it to say that Susan is not inferior to me. We are one. 
Christ is not inferior to God the Father. They are one. But he willingly submitted to the authority of God the Father in his life to illustrate for us what it's like to willingly submit to the authority of God the Father in our life. And if for some reason Susan willingly submits to my authority as the head of our family so that we may demonstrate to others what it's like to put complete and total faith in the God of this universe who made us, saved us, and loved us and wants a relationship with us, if somehow by willingly sacrifice and submitting to one another we can demonstrate what it means to other people to willingly sacrifice and submit to the authority of God in our lives, then so be it. In fact, if I think about head coverings, I wonder if I had worn a hat in here today or a tassel around my belt or a tie around my neck or closed-toed shoes on my feet, would that somehow make me more aptly prepared to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to you? Because if it would, then I should have dressed differently. Because it's not about me and my freedom to be comfortable It's about everybody else and my ability to communicate the goodness of Jesus. And if there's something about this that doesn't do that well, then I should have picked a different outfit. And I should have made a different choice. Because the way that we live and the choices that we make and the opportunities that we seize and even the way that we dress really has an opportunity to draw people closer to Jesus. And if it doesn't, then we're not operating under a principle of maturity and leadership in our lives. That's why we've always got to be examining a final part of who we are, and that's ourselves. Am I in tune with God's plan for my life? Paul concludes in chapter 11 in his talk about communion with a very important reminder for all of us. So a man should examine himself. (coughs) Being able to evaluate yourself is a huge step of maturity. I think about doctors, and I think about the fact that they examine other people to make sure that they're healthy, and they do that because they have, like, this expertise. And then I wonder, do they also do their own exams? And I think that that's um, weird, but I'm sure it's possible because they know what they're doing, right? Well, when we get to the point of maturity where we don't always have to rely on someone else to point the finger back at us if we need to be realigned with Scripture, but we, by the nature of listening to the Holy Spirit in our lives, can do that for ourselves, that's a mark of maturity, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we would know a tree by its fruit. He went on to say in chapter 7 of Matthew, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Just before that, he said, The gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. The manner in which we worship, the manner in which we live, the manner in which we love others, the manner in which we make choices should ultimately reflect a life lived under the authority of Christ as the supreme seat of royal leadership in our lives. Sometimes that's hard to tell. When in doubt, we have to check our pressure. The barometer for the believer is service to others and the salvation of unbelievers. If we are concentrating on loving and serving others well and living a life that points people towards Christ and not further away, because the very thought of pushing someone further away from the person of Jesus Christ plagues on us because we can't stand the thought of someone being separated from him for all eternity, there's a good reason to believe that Jesus Christ reigns supreme in our lives. But if it's only a passing thought, something we only think about it on Sunday when someone tells us to, 
or something at funerals when it's too late. It's time for a checkup. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 8 and 9 too can really be summed up by the end of chapter 10. Where Paul writes, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Give no offense to anyone. Please everyone you can. Don't sing your own profit, but for the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Putting Christ first is not a question of morality. It's a question of motivation. We will know that Christ is Lord over our life when he's first and when he's only. When everything else about us screams, yes, Jesus reigns supreme. Only time and a good evaluation will tell. And if we pay close attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, we're giving some pretty good measuring sticks of understanding the truth about whether or not Jesus really is Lord over us. May he be praised. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are um, blown away by the goodness of you that gave us Jesus and humbled by the grace that you extended to us through your sacrificial death on a cross. God, my prayer for all of us today is that we would be a people who understand what it means to dedicate our whole selves to you, that we would be a people who can easily answer questions about how we learn from the past and how we elevate scripture in our lives, how we take responsibility for our actions and for the lives of other believers around us and how we are growing to maturity under solid Christian leadership. And ultimately, God, how we evaluate what it means to put Jesus first. Father, my prayer for us today is that it would be obvious to all that Jesus is Lord. And that in any area of our life where it's not so obvious, that the powerful work of your Holy Spirit would come and clean us up a little and set us back on track. Thank you for a letter to an early church that struggled a lot to help us today, a later church that sometimes struggles too. Would you help us to put Christ first and name him only in our lives? Because he reigns supreme. And we want to be people who recognize that, choose that, and submit to that. Holy God, we love you. And we make our prayer through the name of your son. Amen.